Good morning. So I like to try to keep my average up on how much I spend up time I spend up here preaching. So I got some time to make up now. <clears throat> so uh, sit back and relax. Now it's a privilege to be able to have the opportunity to come and share with you today. Um, I'm hoping my voice holds up. I've kind of been having this, uh, you know, sinus cold thing kind of going on the last couple of weeks, and and uh, as long as it holds out uh, this morning, that would be great. You know, if you have spent <clears throat> any time at all in the country, then you have seen what I'm getting ready to show you on the screen. Uh, if you grew up out in the country, I definitely know you've seen this. Uh, but e even if you grew up in the city, um, here in the Midwest, you've probably been out and about enough that you have seen this. It's a pretty common sight. Not that. <laughs> this. This. <clears throat> you got a cow. And, of course, we see cattle all over the place. But what this cow is doing stretching its neck uh, between a couple strands of barbed wire fence in order to eat grass on the other side of the fence. Now, the breed of the cow doesn't matter because, you know, it seems like all breeds get in, into the act and they do this. Uh, and, and maybe this is where that, that phrase came from, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. You know, it's because it certainly seems like that's how cattle think is it's always greener, but it's, it's not limited to cattle. I remember one time I was, uh, and I don't remember what I was doing exactly, but, but I remember seeing two horses right at a fence line. And I really wish now in hindsight I had a picture of this, but um, one of the horses was doing this sort of thing, stretching as much as it could. You know, they got tough hides, so barbed wire fences really don't hurt them like it would you or me if we pressed against them hard, but this, this horse was really stretching, eating grass on the other side of the fence. Meanwhile, the second horse, which was on the other side of the fence, was stretching <laughs> through the fence to eat grass where the first horse was at. And I just thought, that is so ironic that, um, that you know, horses on either side of the fence, and they could easily just be you know, chewing away on their own grass, but instead they see what's on the other side of the fence and they think, man, that horse over there has got it better. And so they're stretching out and they're trying to, to eat that. And, and, of course, you know, whether it's horses or whether it's cattle, you know, we think, well, th those are animals. But the reality is, as sometimes is the case, animals do a pretty good job reflecting human nature. And in uh, what I'm illustrating here uh, certainly uh, uh, serves as a case in point. It's not uncommon to find people who have the thoughts, the soundtrack going on in their mind that if only, if only I had a job like Jim. Man, if I had a job like Jim, life would be good. I'd be happy. Every morning I'd wake up, 
I'd look forward to going to work if I only had a job like Jim. Or you maybe have someone whose who's, uh, soundtrack that's playing in their mind over and over and over. If only I had a house like the Joneses. If I had a house like the Joneses, man, that would be so sweet. A four-bedroom house, three-car garage. I mean, what's not to like about that? If I had a house like that, then I'd be set and I would be happy. Life would be good. Or, or maybe the soundtrack goes on a different level and it's regarding a phone. You know, If only I had a smarter smartphone. You know, one with more storage space than what I got. Yeah, if I had a better phone like that coworker over there, well, like all of my coworkers have, then things would be so much better. Or how about this? Just see how hypothetical this is. If only I could lose 30 pounds. If I could lose 30 pounds, then I'd feel great. Life would be good. Yeah, we, we know that that's true. We know that those soundtracks play in people's minds over and over and over again. And the reason we're so convinced of that is because it's happened right here between our ears, between your ears, that you've had those thoughts. In fact, maybe even this week you've been having some thoughts along those lines. You know, the thing is, a lot of people have convinced themselves that if only this or that were different, then life would be good. And they would be satisfied, you know, with life. It sounds familiar because we've been there. Um, But I got news for you, and you know this deep down inside. It's not true. If that one thing did change, guess what? Your sights would end up switching on to something else. Something else would need to change in order for you to be able to see and experience that kind of happiness and contentment and and all. It doesn't take much thought to realize that we come by this pretty naturally, at least in our culture. I can't speak in regard so much to other cultures, but in our culture, you know, when we are being bombarded so much, you know, if you're watching television, you got commercials and commercials and more commercials that are coming. If you're listening to the radio, and I like to listen to talk radio during the opportunities that I'm in the truck, and and it just seems like every three or four minutes there are commercials, you know, and sometimes I'll, I'll get, and I only live like four miles away from the church building, and, and I'll get in uh, my truck and I'll think, okay, I'm going to get, I'm going to get, you know, um, um, just a few minutes of sports radio and to hear what's going on. And from the time I pull out of my driveway to when I pull in here and turn the truck off, I've heard nothing but commercials the entire time. You know, it's just like they never did get to the show. And, and we get bombarded with so many commercials. And, of course, you know, you talk about advertisements that are in social media and stuff like that as well. And, and it just has compiled more and more. And it's one of those things that if you hear something often enough, it kind of has a way of wearing you down. And you start gradually to believe it that for me to really be happy, I need to have a car like that. For me to really be happy, I need to be, be able to go on a trip like that or I need to be on a cruise like that or, or whatever the case might be. These messages that we hear over 
and over and over again have a way of breeding discontentment within us. I've been tasked with the job today of, of bringing up the rear in our study in Philippians. It's an eight-part series that Kurt started a couple of months ago, and today we're going to be dealing with the final section of chapter four. And, um, and so this is what I'm going to be speaking about. And the thing is that, that when I read over this passage, you know, it was kind of like deja vu because it was like I thought we kind of covered some of this in the early part in the series because Paul, in his letter to the church in Philippi, he ends it somewhat similarly as he began it, and that is by expressions of thanksgiving. You know, he's just thanking the people in Philippi for who they are and what they've done and, and you know, for their examples and all of this. You know, he started out that way in chapter 1, and he's ending that way here in chapter 4. Particularly in, in this section of Scripture, he's thanking them for their generosity. That at a given point in time, like especially during his second missionary journey, that the church in Philippi was the only church that was supporting him personally, you know, help, helping make it possible that his needs were met um, while he was doing these travels and sharing the gospel. And, and it, it states that in verse 15, but then in verse 16, he makes it clear that it wasn't just an isolated incident, a one-time gift that they sent, but it was something that they had done again and again and again multiple times. And in fact, in the text, um, he brings up the example of Epaphroditus. And, and it's only found in one verse, Epaphroditus' name is mentioned. But if you remember in chapter 2, there was a section of several verses that were devoted to talking about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was from the church in Philippi. The church sent him to Paul with some of their support, but it wasn't just to deliver the support, but to be a support for Paul. And so Epaphroditus spent time with Paul to help him in his ministry, but he got deathly ill. He almost died. That's what was found in chapter 2. Well, Paul kind of brings all that up again, again as an expression of their generosity and how they were reaching out and trying to meet him and then in verse uh, meet his needs. And then in verse 17, Paul says, I'm not bringing all this up in order to get you to give additional gifts to me. Hint, 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 you know, it's time for another gift. No, no he's making it clear in verse 17 of our text that that's not his motive for bringing this up, but rather instead he wants the people in Philippi to get credit for their generosity. He wants them to be able to receive a reward because they were so generous with him. And so that's a big part of what these closing verses are talking about where he's expressing this gratitude and thanks to the people that made up the church in Philippi. But embedded in these verses, there are three particular verses that I especially want to draw your attention to. Verses 11, 12, and 13. In these three verses, he teaches them um, something that had a lot of relevance importance for them to understand. And the thing is, it has a world of relevance for us today in the 21st century here in America 
as well. And so we really need to tune into this, and this is where we're going to be spending the rest of our time today. There's two things in particular that I want you to notice. And when you read over this passage, um, maybe at first, well, let's go ahead and just read it. It says, I am not saying this because I am in need. That's not why he's bringing all this up. I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, when you're preparing a message, um, and, and whether it be what's happening here today or whether it be in a small group sort of thing, the leader that is going to be leading the study, you know, will take a passage of Scripture and they'll read it. And they won't just read it once. Uh, if they do, then they're going to miss a lot. They read it multiple times, and that's what I did with this passage. Read over it several times. And, and, uh, and part of the reason that you do that is because each time you read through it, you pick up a little bit more. And that's, that's the argument I've always used with people of why it's a good, healthy uh, thing for believers to do is read through the Bible. Whether you put yourself on a timetable of read through it every year, which I think is a good practice, or you read through it every year and a half or something or other, because every time you read through it, you're going to be picking up more that you didn't catch previous. And so when I was reading over this passage multiple times, there were a couple of things that really began surfacing to the top. And once you started seeing it, you couldn't help but see it. And I want you to see it regarding our subject today, because we're talking about contentment. And right out of the gates, there are two things you and I both need to be aware of from Paul's perspective regarding the subject of contentment. First of all, contentment is called a secret. He specifically uses that word, that contentment is a secret. I've learned the secret, he says. Why? Why would he call it a secret? Because a lot of people are clueless on how it can be achieved. It's that simple. A lot of people like the idea of contentment, but they just are clueless. How do I get from here to there? How do I experience the blessing of of um, contentment, and so from that standpoint, it is a secret, and they end up living their lives buying into the illusion that they're only one step away from attaining it. Kind of like what I was saying a few moments ago: that if only I had a job like Jim has, then I would be content, I would be happy. If only I had a house like the Joneses, then you know everything would be good, and and I'd feel good about things. And, and that, that's, that's, a, that's a moving target. That's an illusion that is not based, uh, not rooted in truth. And, and so though people think it is, they buy into it, and they're continually on their, their pursuit of that thing that they need to acquire and change about their life. And guess what if they end up acquiring it? Guess what? Now their sights are set on the next thing. And so they'll be content if the next thing. And, and that's, that's the part of what comes natural, the human nature element in all of this. And because of that tendency, you know, people don't really discover and 
find the blessing of what true contentment uh, can really be like in the life of a believer. The truth is, contentment is not a byproduct of your circumstances. Okay, and and that's let's let's get that in our minds, uh, you know, right now, and it'll be reflected in some of the things that I'll be saying here in a few minutes. But contentment is not a byproduct of your circumstances. It goes a long way in explaining why it is such a rare character trait. When you see it, it just it really catches your attention. When you see someone, you spend time around someone, and maybe it's an aunt or maybe it's a coworker, but you know someone that really seems to exhibit genuine contentment. There's something refreshing about that because it's just like wow, I just don't see that, you know, very often. It is rare. All right, second thing that I want you to see in these three verses, not only does he call it a secret, but he says this, that contentment is something that you learn. In fact, he says that twice in those three verses. I've learned the secret. You know, he's, he's, he's drawing emphasis to, to the reality of the matter is that this was something that kind of had to be developed in, in his life. You see... Contentment is not something that automatically is acquired at the time of conversion. When you give your life to Christ, when you say yes to Jesus and become a follower of the Lord, you know, you receive at that moment in time, according to Scripture, like verses like Acts 2.38, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at that moment of conversion. Well, that's not the way contentment works. That at the time that you fall in line and become a follower of Christ and presto changeo, all of a sudden you're content in the way you face and approach every day of your life. No, it doesn't work that way. This is something you're going to have to cultivate. This is something you're going to need to learn. It doesn't automatically happen. Um, and it certainly isn't just a natural part of a person's temperament. And sometimes we kind of dismiss things in our mind because we just think, well, they're wired different. That, you know, we, we size people up and we say, well, yeah, I'm an introvert. They're an extrovert. Okay, I'm not an extrovert, so I'm never going to be outgoing. I'm never going to be. Well, we kind of do that with, with contentment, too. You know, we look at someone that maybe does exhibit a lot of the characteristics of living a contented life, and we just think, well, that's just the way they are. That's the way they're wired up, and I'm not wired that way. And that, that is an incorrect you know, thing as well. It is something that every believer can learn, okay? So, so, and the fact that they haven't learned it is why he refers to it as being a secret, uh, because people just seem to be unaware of it. All right, now, in view of all of that, the million-dollar question that has got to be asked in all of this is, how do I learn contentment? All right, how do I get from here to there? You know, in view of what he is talking about here, I want to suggest to you five uh, answers to that. And, and I think it's a combination of all of this. And, and I, I'm not claiming this is exhaustive because if we gave it enough time, we could probably come up with another two or three things to add to this list. But, but all five of these, I think, are solid answers in regards to how do I go from here to there? How do I learn contentment? Number one, which by now should be obvious, just in view of what I've said thus far, by looking beyond my circumstances. This is where it begins. You've got to look beyond your circumstances. 
And it's found right in the text. There are two different phrases that are used. One is in verse 11 and one is in verse 12. First of all, he says, I have learned to be content, get this, whatever the circumstances. He's not saying, I have learned to be content when there are favorable circumstances in my life. No, whatever the circumstances, good, bad, neutral, whatever the circumstances are, I've learned to be content. And then he almost repeats that phrase in verse 12. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. So he's not leaving anything out here. So whatever situation you may find yourself in, you may be thinking, well, yeah, I, I could see how this would be relevant for most people, but my situation is an exception. No, it's not an exception. In every, any, and every situation, and that includes whatever the situation is that you're in right now. Now, this seems strange to us because we tend to think that our frame of mind is simply a reflection of how things are going in our life. The way we look at the world around us when we wake up, the attitude we have largely is based on what we've been experiencing the last few days leading into today. Um, we, we think that, that our frame of mind just simply reflects our surroundings. So, for example, you go to work tomorrow and your boss calls you into his office and he gives you a pay raise. Then guess what? You're going to be wearing a smile the rest of the day. And when you go home at the end of the day, you're going to be smiling because the circumstances have dictated that you're going to have a smile, that that's going to be your reaction. However, if you wake up tomorrow morning to begin your work week and you go out to the car and there's a flat on your car, then all of a sudden you're going to get a heavy uh, brow, frown, frown on your face. And it's just like, oh, good grief, what a way to start the week. And now all of a sudden you begin your Monday, you know, in, in a negative fashion with a dark cloud over your head because the circumstances have dictated that. Or let's just say hypothetically your favorite team, you know, has won a Super Bowl back to back, okay? And now it's just like, man, I'm going to wear my colors for another week or two, even though the football season is over with, you know, because your circumstances have dictated that you're on cloud nine right now because of what happened. However, go back to the car analogy, you're on your way to work or maybe lunch break to go grab a bite somewhere and your transmission starts slipping in your car and you're just like, oh, I know what this means. This means there's going to be a hefty repair bill in my near future, you know, and that's just going to put you in a down place. And see, that's the way that we typically approach things and view things is that our frame of mind is simply a reflection on what is going on in our life. But that's not what Paul is doing. And that's something that's noteworthy for us here is, is that he's not allowing his frame of mind just to simply be a reflection of what it is that is going on in his life. His joy, his contentment, was coming from a deeper source. You know, you've heard people sometimes say the phrase, and perhaps you've even uh, said this yourself, um, when someone asks, how are you doing? Maybe you've even said it this morning. When someone said, how are you doing? And, 
and your response is, I'm, I'm doing pretty good under the circumstances. You know, you've heard a phrase like that. I'm fine under the circumstances. And we get what is being said there, but again, the point is a valid point that we're not, we're not restricted to have to live under the circumstances. We can rise above the circumstances. The circumstances in our life aren't a straitjacket that give us no choice but to be restricted to, to having just a certain frame of mind. That's not the way it works. Now, that's the way we tend to allow it to work that way, but it doesn't have to work that way. I, I would remind you that Paul, he's the one that is writing all this and saying all of this, um, and this was pointed out earlier in the series that Paul is in prison at the time that he's writing Philippians. And so his circumstances certainly aren't, you know, delightful. It's not something that he would choose to be the case. He would certainly choose something different than this, but yet he's still expressing contentment in spite of the circumstances that he was experiencing. One of my favorite passages of Scripture in the Minor Prophets talks about this very thing. It's in the little short book called Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Habakkuk is only three chapters long, and, and uh, um, it's you know, referred to as one of the Minor Prophets only because it's a short book, not because he's a less important prophet. Um, but... It's, it's interesting, there's something really unique about the writing of Habakkuk, of this particular prophet, is that I think it's the only one of the prophets that begins by complaining. Right out of the gates in chapter 1, he's complaining about his circumstances. He's complaining of what is going on in the world, in his country, and, and what's happening right now. And, and he's just doing some serious belly aching about things. And then in the middle of chapter 1, God talks to him, gives a response to his complaints. And, uh, you know, it's not pleasing at all what Habakkuk is hearing God say. And so chapter 1 closes out with Habakkuk just kind of, you know, notching it up a little more and belly aching even more. He just doesn't like the situation. It doesn't make any sense to him. And so he's in a bad frame of mind. Well, by the time you get to the end of Habakkuk, and like I said, it's only three chapters long, but you get to the very end. The circumstances haven't changed. Okay, Nothing has changed as far as that goes. But something has changed in here with Habakkuk. And this is what you see Habakkuk saying at the very end. And I love this. These, these two verses, they're pure gold. Here He says this, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. Man, what an expression of faith. And might I say, what an expression of contentment, you know, coming from the prophet. I mean, basically, he is saying that, you know, even if there's no harvest this year, even if there's no livestock, even if there's none of that, 
He's saying, God is good. You know, I, I see this and I hear this all the time, that when someone um, has a biopsy done and it, they get the report back from it and it's negative, it was benign, you know, there's no cancer. You know, I see this in texts, I see this in emails, and, and I hear it in person. People say, God is good, and people will respond in, in, in agreement, God is good. Or, or, you know, if someone gets a pay raise or they're able to land that job that they've been looking for and hoping for and praying about, and then they end up landing the job, and then it's like, God is good. And the truth is, God is good. You know, test results. You know, being negative, God is good. Landing that job, God is good. But, but hear me when I say, even if the test results came back positive and they were found to have cancer, God is good. Even if they don't land the job and they got to continue to hold two part-time jobs for the foreseeable future, God is good. See, this doesn't change God. And so we, we've got to be careful in, in allowing our circumstances to dictate, you know, elements of our faith and just the way we, we look at the world around us. The second thing that I think would be beneficial in learning contentment is by avoiding comparisons. This, this, is, this is equally a biggie here. Comparing yourself to others will always end up leading to discontentment. It will always do that because there will always be people who are slimmer and trimmer than you. There will always be people who make more money than you. There will always be people that seem to have fewer problems than you and your family have. So what? So what if that's the case? But if, but if you decide that's what you're going to become focused on, fixated on, then... Um, it's going to put you in a dark place. It's going, to, it's going to put you in a bottom of a hole, and that's how you're going to be looking at things. You know, doing the comparison game, you will lose. You will lose by playing that game. There is a reason that Paul said what he did in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 when he said, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. That's just another way of saying they're not very smart. You know, if you keep comparing yourself to other people, that's not very smart to do that. Don't get caught up in the game because that is a game you cannot win. And it can happen in a variety of ways. It can happen in a workplace as you're sizing up people around you that you work with and looking at their lives and becoming envious of how they have this going for them or they have that going for them and you don't and you become fixated on that and that's just going to drive you lower and lower. Or it can even happen without personal contact, direct contact. It can happen through things like Facebook. You know, when you see what people want you to see. I mean, if I understand this correctly, that's kind of the way Facebook works, right? People put the image out there that they want other people to see. And I'm not saying that's all bad, but, but yet we forget that sometimes 
when we're looking at someone else and we're seeing, man, they're smiling all the time. Man, they're always seeing great places. They're traveling. They're doing this. They're doing that. And it's how come I don't get to experience that kind of happiness in my life? And you see what we're doing. We're a broad brushstroke. We're, we're concluding that, whoa, they got it all together and they've got a happy, solid marriage and they got fun kids that are always having a good time. None of their adolescents have attitudes and stuff like that going on because you don't see it in any of those images. And the reality is that that is not reality. You know, but we kind of lose sight of that and we get all caught up again in that comparison game. So, so in order to learn contentment, you, need, you and I both need to avoid those kind of comparisons. The third thing, by valuing what is eternal. This, this is a biggie, just on the sheer basis of how many passages of Scripture talk about this. Because this, this is found all over the place. This is a value that God wants us to have, that we look at things with the right perspective. And that includes our life. Jesus weighed on to this. Uh, topic in a big way right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so your focus, where is your focus? What is it that you are valuing? Because that's where your heart's going to be. Your heart is going to follow your focus. And so if you're going to be focused all about, again, going back to the thing about cars or houses or things, wardrobes, stuff like that. If you're going to be all focused on stuff like that, then that is where your heart is going to be. And the reality of the matter is what Jesus is pointing out in this passage, among other things, is that houses and cars and clothes and electronics and boats and lake houses and all of that kind of stuff, all of that stuff is temporary. All of it is temporary. So we need to be careful about approaching our lives with short-sightedness, thinking that that kind of stuff is what the essence of life is. That's the substance of life, is stuff. It's not the substance of life. And that's why Jesus made it such an uh, impactful uh, point that he was making in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Paul was writing a letter, a couple letters actually, to a young preacher named Timothy that he had commissioned, sent to Ephesus to complete some of the work in the church that Paul was instrumental in starting um, but there were certain things that hadn't been accomplished or done yet. And so he sent this young preacher there to kind of button up some of that stuff. And, and so then Paul wrote a couple of letters. That's what First Timothy and Second Timothy in your New Testament are all about. And part of the instruction that he was given Timothy uh, was very insightful and very cutting-edge kind of stuff. But then some of what he put in there was just kind of like, well, yeah, duh. You know, I mean, that seems so obvious. You know, it's as obvious as the nose on your face. But yet Paul knew the wisdom of because it's obvious doesn't mean 
We don't need to be reminded of it. And so he reminds Timothy of something that in view of what we're talking about here today, we all need to be reminded of as well. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. We brought nothing with us when we came into the world. And we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. That's kind of obvious, right? You didn't bring anything into the world. And when you leave, regardless of how many titles and deeds and stuff like that you have, you're not taking anything with you. You're going to leave all that behind. So let's be content, you know, with what we have in between those two times, when we came and when we leave this life. As Christians, we need to be big picture people. Like I said, there's lots of scripture. I'll give you one more on this. 2 Corinthians 4.18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So if you can see it, it's temporary. But what is eternal is what is unseen. And that's what we need to, as Christians, grow and learn to become focused on that more and more as we go along. Another um, answer to the question of how do I learn contentment, and I've got to give this one because the text forces me to give this one, by looking to the Lord for strength. This is embedded right in those verses that I read, read for you earlier. We need to look to the Lord for strength because that's what that strength is there for. Let me show you a verse that is perhaps for some people, it is the best known verse in the book of Philippians. You know, that just kind of rises above all the others as far as a verse that, you know, comes back to memory and sometimes we quote, uh, quote sometimes People cross-stitch it and put it on some kind of a wall hanging. Sometimes it's on a little magnet they put on the refrigerator or they imprint it on a T-shirt and it's on a T-shirt. I'm talking about Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Man, what a great, what a great verse. I mean, that verse right there just kind of stands alone and hits a home run all by itself, right? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And I've heard people use this verse in a variety of ways. You know, I, I recall a time that uh, someone um, had been given, a, had been asked to give a speech in a setting um, that was really intimidating for them because they didn't have a great deal of experience in giving speeches, and especially in, in view of the size of the crowd that they were going to be speaking to. And so they were very nervous you know, about that. And I, I tried to give a little bit of coaching and encouragement, you know, to them um, as, as they were approaching the time. But one of the things that I heard them, you know, kind of whispering somewhat to themselves was this verse. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And they ended up doing a fabulous job. I mean, they did a great job, you know. And so there seemed to be a lot of truth you know, in that, that, that the Lord helped that person to, to rise up and, and to deliver on that moment. Or I've heard someone, um, Rex, remember back in the college days, that, you know, sometimes, and I've never been a professor, so I don't know why it works this way, but some of the classes 
uh, and Rex was one of my professors down at Ozark Bible College, as it was called back at that time. And some of the classes, um, you go all semester long. You know, I don't know how many weeks and all that is, but but you go all semester long, and then you have a final exam, and then your professor tells you this final exam is half your grade. And I'm like, I spent all of this time just developing half of my grade, and now it's all going to come down to this. And, and that can be pretty unnerving for a young college student. And, and I remember, you know, um, another student that uh, during that time, um, you know, was, was kind of falling back on this verse. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Lord, help me to ace this exam because I really need it to pull my grade up. And, and you know, and, and I think they ended up doing fine on the exam. But, you know, this verse has been used in a variety of different ways, you know, and, and that's great. However, I've got to point this out. That's not the context in which Paul said this. I think the principle is true in regards to some other passages of Scripture and what they teach, but this verse does not directly have anything to do with a final exam or giving a speech in front of a large group. It has everything to do with contentment in adverse circumstances. That's what Paul was talking about. He was saying that, that whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do that. I can do that. I can get from here to there. I can get through the day. I can get through this week. Now, and, and in, in connection with that, I think I need to say uh, something by way of clarification. Contentment doesn't mean that you have to like the situation you're in, okay? Just, just because you find someone that's content doesn't mean, well, they must really like their situation and all. That, that oftentimes isn't the case. I'll remind you, Paul was in prison, and he's talking about contentment here. Yeah, so it's not that you have to, you know, like your situation. What contentment is, is, is it is saying that regardless of my circumstances, I can handle this, I can get through this, because the Lord is going to help me get through this. The Lord's going to see me from here to there. You know, whether I have plenty or whether I have little. Yeah, I'm going to get there. I'm not alone in my struggles. I'm not alone in the challenges. So, so looking to the Lord for strength is a biggie in learning contentment. And then number five, and this kind of leads right into number five, by trusting the Lord for my needs. And again, I point this one out because the text requires me to point this out because it's right there in the text, that we lean hard on the Lord for our needs. Late in the, the passage that I'm covering today, you get down to verse 19 and you read this, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's kind of the backdrop to this whole thing about contentment having plenty, having little, learning the secret, all of this stuff, the, the backdrop to it all is God's got me covered. He's going to meet my needs. You know, when I buy an insurance policy, and over my lifetime I've bought a number of different policies, where, whether it was uh, life insurance or automobile 
um, policy or or some kind of supplemental insurance, contents insurance, or so, something along those lines. Well, when, when I'm preparing to, to buy an insurance policy, what I do is I read through it as detailed as I can because I want to make sure I understand what is covered in this policy. And if there's some jargon in that that I just don't really understand because it's terminology I don't normally use, I'll ask questions about that. You know, about what does this mean? And is this found there? You know, I'll bring something else up that I haven't seen and say, is it found there in any of that terminology? I'll, I'll get that clarification. And once I know what is covered, I'm not going to worry about it anymore once I get that policy. Why? Because I'm covered. That's why I got the policy, was to make sure that I was covered. I say that to say this, that in your Bible, there are some 6,000 promises that God gives to you. And 6,000 promises that he gives to me, roughly. And that's a big part of the reason why it's in our best interest to get well acquainted with what this book says. So we know he's got us covered. Can you see how contentment comes off of that? Absolutely. You know, you, you know God's got your back, that God's going to take care of you. You don't need to be worrying about so much of the things that you fret about. And let me close with this last verse, Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is perhaps the most referenced portion of the entire Bible. And the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want you know how it begins, verse 1. This is one of the few times that I actually favor a paraphrase for verse 1. Psalm 23, verse 1. Uh, in the Living Bible, I really like the way that it is worded because I think it really captures the next five verses. Here's the way it's worded in the Living Bible. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. I think that's great. That's expressed well. And especially when you read verse 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. So let me say this. The secret of contentment is not a principle. It's not a formula. The secret of contentment is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. That's where all of this leads us. I, I I've got an assignment for you. If you've looked at your outline in your bulletin, you see this. Um, your assignment this week is on more than just one day. Take Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to the end of the chapter, verse 39. Take those 11 verses and read over that a couple of times and just reflect on it. And do that at least a couple of days this week. And by so doing that, I believe you will develop a better understanding as to why Christ is the secret to contentment. When you read that, it'll bless your heart. And it'll help you to realize, God is good. God is good. He's got me covered. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity 
that we have to be able to gather like this as a body, a family of believers, and to be able to look into your word and, and just receive the blessing and the instruction that is desperately needed in the day and age that we find ourselves living in today. Contentment, true contentment, it is so rare in today's world. But Lord, we realize it's within reach. And we thank you for that. And we pray that your spirit will guide us, will convict us to be able to, to discover it in, in deeper ways than we ever have before in our life. Thank you for being all that we need. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. this meditation might take a moment, so I'm just going to pull up a chair. I'm just kidding. No, in fact, in lieu of a communion meditation today, I want to do something that I used to do as a kid. And if you grew up in church, you right, might remember this. Go ahead and get your bread out, but hold on to it for just a moment. So I'll give you guys just a second to do that. And here are the instructions. Basically, there's going to be a verse come up. We're going to say that out loud together, and then we'll all partake of the bread at the exact same time. So this is 1 Corinthians 11.24. Let's say this together. And when he had given... Let's say 1 Corinthians 11.25 together as well. In the same way. I don't know about you, but there's just something powerful about being able to take communion all together like that and saying scripture aloud. Love it. I'm going to allow the next few moments for you guys just to pray whatever's on your heart. If you want to lift somebody up in prayer, if you've got something in your life that needs prayer, or you just want to be in a sense of gratitude for what Jesus did for us, the next few moments are yours. <laughs> 